And this evening, we're dealing with the last of the series of messages that I've been preaching on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And this is the last message, but it'll take me two parts to get this done. And so we won't actually finish up until next week. But from verse number 18 of chapter 5, down through verse number 9 in chapter 6, Paul is talking about different demonstrations of the Holy Spirit's filling. And we've, we've concentrated mainly on the outward expression of feeling, uh, of filling of the Spirit. And that's in the way that uh, is expressed in our relationships that we have with one another. And the key to this section that we've been studying is uh, chapter 5, verse number 21, where Paul says, "...submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God." And then he goes on to talk about the marriage relationship, and he speaks about that in comparison to the way that Christ loves the church. Uh, He talks about children and about how they are to be obedient to their parents and how they're to honor their parents. And, of course, he doesn't leave that section without talking about also uh, the parents' responsibility in dealing with children. Now Paul comes to the the last of of this section, and this particular part has the has to do with the uh, relationship between slaves and their masters. And we might think that that is a little bit odd for us today, uh, living in America, because we don't have slaves, so to speak. But even though we don't have slaves, there is a way that we can apply the teaching that Paul gives us here, and we apply it to the way that we deal with one another in the workplace. How are Christians to act as they uh, go to work in different places? And what are the relationship between the employer and the employee? And so we see what Paul is doing here. He's really considering the entire spectrum of our lives. And that is that we, we don't all live our lives right here in the church building. Uh, in fact, we spend very little time right here. And so Paul concerns himself with not just what takes place among Christians inside the church but what happens in all phases of our life. And to be the kind of Christian that God wants you to be, he wants you to be aware of those different relationships and live in the right relationships to other people. So when you become a Christian, it changes all relationships. It changes your outlook on the world. And really, everything that you look at, you have to look at through the eyes of Jesus Christ. Well, I'd like for us to stand as we read the text verses tonight. Uh, Paul begins the discussion of the workplace in chapter 6, beginning in in verse number 5. He says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity we have to come together tonight. I just ask you, Lord, you might bless in the message as I preach and Lord, help us to learn something from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In the past few weeks, we've been looking at uh, family relationships, different types of relationships between people. Uh, We've been talking about wives and husbands and and children and parents. And when we come here to verse number five of chapter six, 
it appears to us that Paul is turning our attention away from the family, and now he wants to talk about an entirely different relationship as he speaks about slaves and masters. But the truth of the matter really is that Paul is not really yet turning his attention away from the family because back in the days that Paul lived, the slaves that that were there were often considered part of the family or part of the household. And not only were there uh, Christians who were slaves at that time, but there were also uh, Christians who owned slaves. And we know that from a letter that Paul wrote to a man by the name of Philemon. That's one of the letters that we have in the New Testament that Paul wrote. And Philemon was a slave owner. And when Paul wrote to him, he, he wrote to him to intercede for a runaway slave that this particular man owned. And he was asking uh, that the slave owner, Philemon, would, would grant him forgiveness and would receive him back as his slave without any retribution. And then in other places of, of Scripture, there's mentioned the, the households of Christians. Uh, for instance, in Acts chapter six, 16, when the Bible is talking about the conversion of Lydia, it talks about her baptism and the baptism of her household. Well, the Bible doesn't really say anything about Lydia being a married woman. And so the indication is that probably it's speaking about servants that she had, and they were considered to be part of the household. And so when Paul talks here about slaves and masters, he's really still considering what takes place inside of the home. But for us, there, there is really a bigger picture here. Since, since we don't have slaves today, we don't own slaves, then we can take the teaching that he gives us and we can apply it to how we are, in the, how we are to live and to, and to be in the workplace, that relationship between employer and employee. Well, we're going to talk about that in this sermon, only it's not going to come in this part of the sermon. I'm going to save that for next week. We're going to talk about that in part number two. And rather tonight, I want to talk to you about a subject that I think is fairly interesting. And that is, what does the Bible teach about slavery? What does the Bible really have to say about the issue of slavery and Christianity as it relates to slavery? So we're going to talk about that tonight in the sermon for just a few minutes. So the first thing that I want to speak about is the problem of slavery. Uh, one of the objections that has been raised against Christianity, uh, lately at least, and, and when I speak of lately, I'm not talking about last year or 10 years ago. I'm speaking about lately as it relates to the whole history of Christianity. In the past 150 to 200 years, there have been a lot of questions raised about why the Bible does not make a clear-cut denunciation of slavery? And why doesn't the Bible just come out and tell us in, in no uncertain terms that this is totally demeaning and it's an inhuman way of treatment? And there are many people that really don't know this, and, and they think that there, there surely must be some scripture. I mean, somewhere in the Bible, there has to be a scripture that very clearly tells us that slavery is wrong. And most people are shocked to find out that the Bible really doesn't say anything about it in that vein. Now, I want to address this, this question first tonight. Does the Bible condemn or condone slavery? Now, on one hand, you have people who will point you to scriptures like Galatians 3 verse 28. And this scripture says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And so they say, well, there you have it. The scriptures are telling us that when people get saved, you no longer have any class distinctions. All of us are alike now. Uh, there are no social distinctions that are supposed to be made. And all of those things have been done away because people are now saved. 
And so on that basis, they would say things like men and women are equal. Uh, Women can preach just like men can preach. Uh, Personal relationships have changed. Uh, We no longer regard nationalities. Uh, In fact, we could all join together and have one world government, and that would be biblical. And so all of us are now uh, in this situation of worldwide uniformity. But that's not what Paul is saying. And if you do a little bit of studying on the issue, you find out very quickly that there are still Jews and Greeks. And you find out that there are still bondmen and there are still free men. And if you look real closely, you'll probably discover that there really are still males and females. And we're all different. So this verse has nothing to say about the issue of slavery and those relationships. It's talking about the personal salvation or the initial salvation of every believer. And what it's really teaching is that God shows no partiality according to human differences in the people that he decides to save. And so he doesn't choose people based on whether they're Jews or Greeks or any nationality. And he doesn't save people because one's a male and one's a female, or one would have to be a a free man or a slave. That's not the basis on which God chooses in salvation. And so this part that deals with bond and free does not mean that the Bible has laid down a principle that condemns slavery and would demand the release of all slaves. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned uh, uh, that Paul wrote a letter to a Christian man named Philemon, and he was a slave owner. And Paul's purpose in writing that letter was to ask Philemon to forgive this slave that had stolen from him and had run away from him. Now, Onesimus is the slave's name. Uh, He ran into Paul while Paul was a prisoner in Rome, and he was converted under Paul's preaching. Well, what Paul didn't do, he didn't tell Onesimus, well, here's what you, what you need to do. You need to hide out and you, and you need to continue as a runaway. He didn't say it's unjust for, for you to be held in slavery. And so I'm giving you par- my permission to get as far away from your master as you possibly can. Instead, what Paul does, he talks about God's providence. And we find here that, that Onesimus didn't just happen to be a slave that fell upon Paul one day. But Onesimus is a person who is converted under Paul's preaching and he just happens to be, if you want to put the word happens in quotation marks, he just happens to be the slave of a man who'd also been converted under Paul's preaching. And so uh, Paul tells him that he is still legally bound to his master and he should return uh, to the master that, that he was properly owned by. So Paul wrote to Philemon, And he began the letter by saying, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. So we notice there that Paul begins the letter with with endearing remarks. And one thing we notice he didn't say, he didn't say, "Now, now you scoundrel Philemon, you become a Christian, and now you ought to know better that Christianity is not compatible with slavery. And so, therefore, you are to release all your slaves. You have no right to hold any slaves. Well, if that was Paul's intention to speak specifically about evils of slavery, the book of Philemon would have been the perfect place for Paul to do it. But Paul didn't do that. Instead, in the letter, we're going to read a little bit more of it in just a minute, but he was never harsh. He never commanded Philemon to do anything He simply encouraged him to receive that runaway slave back with the knowledge that now he had become a believer in Jesus Christ and therefore he had been forgiven by God and so also Philemon should forgive him for having run away. 
Now, that might be shocking to some of us here tonight. And you may not like that. And you might think, well, Pastor Smith is, is now saying that slavery is no big deal. And it really doesn't matter whether they had slaves or not. And people will become indignant about it. Well, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that it's all right to hold slaves. And neither is Paul saying that. But the question still comes up. I mean, why, why doesn't Paul make a definitive statement right here about the evils of slavery? I mean, why does he write about it in Ephesians chapter 6? He talks about it in Philemon and in Colossians and in 1 Timothy and in Titus. And in none of those places does he ever say, does he ever make a a statement against slavery? He never says that it's all right for slaves to run away. He never tells them to do that. And he never does say that slavery is wrong. And then when Peter addressed it in 1 Peter, he did the same thing. He didn't encourage slaves to be disobedient disobedient and to run away, but rather he encouraged their best obedience and never to be in a position of rebellion. So the question then, does the Bible condemn or condone slavery? Well, we have the answer to the first part of the question. No, the Bible does not condemn slavery. Well, then does the Bible condone slavery? Because that sure looks like where we're headed, doesn't it? I mean, it looks like, I mean, we're headed right down that path. And I'm going to say something here in just a moment to say, well, this was an institution that's really all right because they, because they did it in Bible times. Well, we're going to answer the question about that in a little bit different way. And we'll answer part of the question this way. The Bible deals primarily with man's relationship with God. The purpose of the Bible from cover to cover is to answer Job's question in Job 9, verse number 2. He said, how shall man or how should man be just with God? And we never find any place in the scripture where Paul or the other apostles, never do we find even Jesus speaking out or trying to overthrow human government and human institutions. And we never see in the New Testament that there's this all-out effort that, that they would try to, uh, to right all kinds of social problems and injustices. And if there's one thing that pastors and churches, I believe, have gone seriously wrong on today, it's the preaching of politics and trying to involve the church in some types of levels of reforming the government and reforming the world. Well, the answer to that is it was never God's intention to reform the world. And that's because the world can't be reformed. It's God's intention to save the world. And the only way that God decided that would be done is through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. And if we decide that we're going to turn our attention uh, to preaching politics, then what we've done, we have abandoned Christ's commission and we're not doing the work that God has called us to do. So if pastors, and you've heard me say this before, If pastors on the Christian right had given as much attention to the preaching of the gospel of Christ as they have to this issue of trying to correct all the ills of the government, we'd be far further ahead than we are today. Well, let me make two points about this. And these two things were surely known to the Apostle Paul. And perhaps this will give us the reasons why that Paul preached in the way that he did and not in the way that we would have liked him to or what we expect. The first thing, first statement is, politics endangers evangelism. Now, let's think about for a minute the world that Paul lived in. It's estimated that in the time of Paul, there were 60 million people that were living in slavery. And so that means that half of the world's population was enslaved to the other half. And there's no doubt about it. Slavery was a cruel institution. 
If you, if you look at this under the, in the Roman Empire, you find out that slaves had no rights at all. Uh, slaves were considered to be chattel. They were property. They were considered not much more than just tools or instruments to be used. And so a slave was nothing more than like a piece of machinery or a farm implement. And, and when a slave became old or, or he became sick and he was no longer useful to his master, then the Romans thought it was all right to take that slave out and literally throw him out on the garbage heap. And then they refused to, to feed their old slaves and their sick slaves because they were no use to them anymore. It was a waste of money to do that. So you never took your money to try to support an old slave or a sick slave. You just simply turned him out and let him die. And then there were some of the Romans that simply just loved the misery of slavery. And what I mean is that they, they loved to hear the sounds of slaves that were being flogged. They were cruel and inhuman. Uh, if a slave owner was of s- sufficient uh, worth, uh, had the ability, he could do this. If, if he didn't like what a slave did and that slave didn't please him, all that he had to do was speak the word or or himself, he could have a slave killed. And so they have no regard at all. They're totally uncompassionate towards those that were in slavery. Well, with 60 million slaves in the world, the entire economy of Rome was dependent upon slavery. And so you couldn't just come along here and just immediately tear down this institution. Uh, You just couldn't come along and start converting slaves to Christianity and and encouraging them uh, to run away and get away from their masters and get out of this institution of slavery. Well, the first thing, if they tried to do that, there wasn't any place for them to run. They were going to be caught and they would be killed. And and so you you couldn't do anything with this institution as it stood unless there was to be a total mass defection of all slaves at one time. And, of course, that's not going to happen. There, There couldn't be any of these small pockets of resistance because those would be quickly overthrown. And in the process, what would have happened to Rome is that the entire economy would have been in shambles. I mean, they would have starved to death. And so to change the issue of slavery, there would have to be a guarded change, a gradual change, if there's going to be any change at all. But here's the real problem. If Paul had advocated that, uh, that slaves should run away from their masters, if he tried to dismantle the system of slavery through preaching... Christianity would have been squashed like a bug. There wouldn't have been any liberty to preach the gospel. Uh, There wouldn't be any street preaching. There would be no Christians out in public trying to tell other people how to be saved. The rapid spread of the gospel that happened in the first century would never have happened. And what you would have had was the, the strides and the gains of the gospel would have been measured in fractions of inches rather than great strides that took place in that first century. And then we think about Paul in the Roman prison. If we go back to the reasons why Paul ended up there, you you remember from, uh, hopefully from our study of Acts, that Paul ended up in Rome because he made an appeal to Caesar. He was accused of making an insurrection, but of course they could never make that stick because Paul never made it a point to speak out against the government. And so if Paul had begun to preach about human institutions, and if he tried to right the social injustices of the Roman Empire, then what would have happened is that Paul would have never made it to Rome. He never would have been able to write these letters that we, that we know now as the New Testament. And so we wouldn't have all this instruction, and Christianity would have died out right there in the first century. 
Well, people will ask questions then. Well, what about martyrs? I mean, what about all the martyrs? I mean, uh, don't we applaud men who, who stand up and they become martyrs for certain causes? I mean, don't we applaud people who, who speak out against social injustices and, and would really give their lives to see social change take place? Well, we may applaud martyr, martyrs in that way. But if you think back about this and think about the martyrs that have the most impact on the world today, who are they? Are they martyrs that could have been preaching and at the same time decided to preach against social injustices and, and try to right all social ills? Or are the martyrs that remember, we remember the ones who were killed for the preaching of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, we, we don't even remember the names of martyrs that died for social injustices, but we have all kinds of names. We're very much aware of those that were killed for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, what happened is that these martyrs uh, lived in a time of great social injustices, but we find that they didn't preach about those things. They were put to death because they stood up for the gospel of Christ. In Rome, whenever anything went wrong, do you know who got the blame? It was always Christians. Whenever there was a, a war that was fought and if Rome was to lose a battle, who got the blame? Christians got the blame. If there was a natural disaster... Christians got the blame. And you know why? It's because those Christians, they, they didn't worship the gods of the Romans and the Greeks. They didn't believe in all these gods. And so having these Christians in the kingdom, what it did then or in the empire is that it angered the gods. And so the Christians are to blame for this. And there were many Christians who were killed for being insurrectionists, even though they'd never done anything wrong. They'd never spoken against the government. They were just killed because of this religion that angers the gods of the Romans. Now, let's consider what would have happened if overtly and outwardly the apostles, Paul, and others that were preaching the gospel at that time, what if they decided that we are going to preach against the issue of slavery, we're going to deal with that, and we're going to try to right political and social injustices? Well, what would happen? Well, exactly what I talked about a moment ago. Christianity would never have gotten it started. It never would have gotten off the ground because the Romans would have squashed it like a bug. But that's only half the problem. The other problem is that the statement that I've just made here is that politics kills evangelism. You see, when I start preaching about politics, immediately, immediately, I ruin my influence with a segment of the population. Now, let's broaden that for just a little bit. Let's suppose that, that uh, I'm in communist China, and I'm a preacher of the gospel, and I decide that what I'm going to do is I'm going to speak out against communism because I believe that that's wrong, and I'm going to preach against communism at the same time that I'm preaching the gospel of Christ. Well, the entire country is saturated with communism, isn't it? I mean, communism is their way of life. Communism is their form of government. And so if I begin to preach that, well, communism is wrong and all people that are involved in communism are evil and people that are communists are going to go to hell, well, what will happen? Well, again, I've just lost a huge portion of the target audience. I can't deal with them according to the gospel of Christ because they're already angry over the issue of the politics that I'm preaching. And this, this is the same thing that we, that we see uh, all around the world today. When missionaries go to foreign fields, 
They may go to places where there are oppressive governments, but they don't spend their time talking about the political issues in that country. They don't try to right the social injustices. They simply deal with the gospel of Christ. If you were to ask Tim Ekno, our, our missionary was in South, uh, Southeast Asia, Vietnam for so many years. If you ask him, how much time did you spend trying to right the communist government of Vietnam? You know what he would say? Zero. Because he didn't spend any time doing that. He had to deal with the situation that he was in and try to bring people uh, to the gospel of Christ without preaching all of that. So why do we think, why do we think in this country that it's all right for us to get behind the pulpit and alienate most of the people that we talk to by preaching politics from behind the pulpit? It doesn't make any sense at all. See, we've, already, we, we've got a problem here. Politics endangers evangelism because I've already got a huge problem trying to overcome prejudice against the gospel. I mean, you're, you're trying to get into the door with people that uh, uh, basically the human nature is to hate Jesus Christ. And so you've got to overcome that barrier Why in the world do you want to stack something on top of that by getting into all these political issues and dealing with that? I mean, you're going to stop people from you getting into the door before you ever make a a stab at it. Before you ever knock on the door, you're not going to get in. You've already angered them in some other area. So the apostles and Jesus and, and, and the disciples in that first century, they didn't deal with these kind of issues like that. They put those things aside and they dealt with the situation as they had them. Well, so what do they do? Uh, How are you going to solve this problem? Well, Paul had a way of solving it. Number two here, his method of of solving the problem is change the heart and you change the relationship. Now, now here's what we notice in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. Paul does not condemn slavery, but neither does he condone it. Now, even though there were slaves in parts of many of those households, he treats the issue of slavery differently. Now, we notice when he speaks about the home and the marriage relationship, he relates that to to Christ and the church. When he talks about children, he relates that to a different principle. He says, now, children, you need to obey your parents because this is right. This is a righteous thing to do. And he's appealing to both parents and children on the basis of natural law. God's already built this into our hearts. I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you you already know this. I mean, this is a natural law built into man's heart that children are to obey their parents. And then he goes even further than that. He says, this is a, a revelation that God has given. Remember, he said, children obey your parents. And he said, this is the first commandment with promise. And so he's relating these things in a different way. The, the family, the home, uh, husband and wife, that's as Christ in the church. Uh, Children obeying your parents. This is natural law. It's special revelation from God. But we notice when he comes down here talking about the issue of slavery, he doesn't compare this relationship to anything that's natural. And he doesn't say anything about this being revelatory. So what does Paul's preaching do? It doesn't abolish slavery because Paul can't do that. We've already described the reasons why he can't do it. Preaching against slavery is suicide for him. That stops the gospel in his tracks. But what he does do through the preaching of the gospel is to transform the institution as it is. He can't get rid of it, so he deals with it as it is. And he shows us here that when the gospel transforms the individual, 
it will also in turn transform the institution. Now let's go back to Paul's letter to Philemon. Uh, Philemon is a saved man. Uh, He's a slave owner, but now he owns a saved slave. So Paul writes to to, uh, Philemon and he says, you need to receive this slave in a new way. I want you to turn to the book of Philemon, if you would, please. And uh, Philemon is only one chapter. Uh, If you have difficulty finding that, find 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then Titus, and Philemon comes right after that, just before you get to Hebrews. But let's look at this. In Philemon, uh, only one chapter, let's look at verse number 8. Paul's already through with the salutation, and now he begins the plea for this runaway slave, Onesimus. In verse number 8, he says, Wherefore... Though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I beseech thee for Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Now, what Paul's doing there is explaining that Onesimus has been saved now, and, and now he's going to make this plea for him. In verse number 11, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Now, the problem here is that Onesimus has wronged Philemon. He stole something from him, and then he decided to run away. And so Paul says, in that state, he's an unprofitable servant. But now he's heard the gospel of Christ, he believes it, and now he will be profitable. Verse 12, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is mine own vows, whom I have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Now there Paul is saying, I I, I could keep Onesimus here with me. He says, Onesimus is useful to me now. He can help me in the furtherance of the gospel. In verse 14, but without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. Now, in that verse, he's saying, I would keep him, but he's not my servant. He belongs to you. And I have no right to take what belongs to you without asking you for it first. Verse 15, for perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever. Now, if you read this closely, you can't miss how Paul brings everything that he teaches right back to the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. Now here, Paul is telling us that Onesimus did not just show up on my doorstep. He didn't come to my doorstep by accident. And what he's telling us is God sent him there in order to hear the gospel. He was one of the elect of God And God put him in the place where he would hear the gospel and to be saved. Now what this does then, God's in control of the process. And what it does, it it gives Onesimus the opportunity to be restored to his master in the proper way. He has the opportunity of salvation. And he has the ability to be restored to the master without pain. So here we see God's will is never done by accident. God, God is always in control of all situations. But here's the real part that I want you to see. This is in verse 16. Paul states that there is a relationship change. Now, in the end of verse 15, he says, that thou shouldest receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, what this is not, this is not a demand that Philemon release Onesimus. But now he says, 
Onesimus is saved, and what you need to do is to receive him as a brother. Well, well, I don't think that Philemon was a harsh uh, master over his slaves. I mean, he was a Christian man. And um, so Paul is telling him that he should forgive Onesimus for the wrong that he had done because Christ had forgiven him. And so Philemon is to forgive Onesimus simply for the fact that he's returning what God has done for him. God forgave Philemon of his sins. And we're to follow the example of Christ that we are also to forgive others. So he's setting up the principle here. So Philemon is not to receive Onesimus just as a servant, but above a servant. Now, what it means then, he still has this lawful relationship to Philemon as a slave. But now he's also related to Philemon as a brother in Christ. So you see what Christianity is doing here? When the heart is changed, it changes our relationships to one another. Now, keep that in mind, and let's think about what the Bible has to say about how we are to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, uh, one of the tenderest passages of Scripture that we have in all the Bible is one that's very familiar to you. It's Philippians chapter 2. It says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, Fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let me stop there for just a moment to consider this. Now, if Philemon accepts what Paul says in Philippians here, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better, better than themselves. Can you see how that would change the relationship between slave and master? Even though the institution still remains, yet the relationship between the slave and master is radically changed because the, the, the heart has been changed. In Galatians 6, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault... Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Apply that to the institution of slavery. Slave, uh, saved slave owner, saved slave. Now they have a completely different relationship, bearing of one another's burdens, because that's Christian. Now, a few minutes ago, I pointed out to you that the Bible deals primarily with man's relationship with God. Now, I want you to see then the order of duty that Christ gives when he talks about the great commandment. Remember, Christ was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? And he responded this way, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So in that statement, what Jesus does, he says the first thing that we have to do, we must deal with man's relationship with God. And then when the relationship with God is established, we can start to deal with the relationship of man to man. And it's not until we get that first one right, our relationship with God, can we ever be right in the second relationship, our relationship with one another. So do you see how the Bible is cohesive in its teaching here? I mean, it sticks all perfectly together. It's all bound together. Now, in Ephesians, then, we see that Paul can't deal with the relationship of person to person until he first deals with the relationship of the person with God. 
And then now that that relationship with God has been established, Paul can write to Philemon. Now the the relationship's established. He can write to Philemon and tell him how to respond to Onesimus as a brother in Christ. Now here we see how the wisdom of God outshines the wisdom of man. You know what we would be tempted to do? If you put contemporary American Christians in the first century and you put them there in the middle of all that social injustice and with this issue of slavery, you know what we would do? We would charge in like a bull in a china shop. I mean, we would toss things up. We try to change things. We try to make it all different. We deal with the political and the social issues. You ever thought about what happens to the bull after he gets done tearing up the china shop? What do they do to the bull? Well, most likely he ends up on somebody's table as hamburger, doesn't he? God's too wise for that. God knows how to deal with things as they are. So God's wisdom says, let me deal with the heart first. Let me change man's heart. And then when his heart is changed, then we can change his relationship with man. That is so much missed in our preaching in our pulpits today. We're trying to change institutions. We're trying to change the government. We're trying to change Congress. We're trying to change this and change that. Forget about it. Forget it. You're not going to do it. You have to change the heart first. And that's always God's approach to this. So what happens here then is that in Ephesians 6, the slave is now referred to as the servant of Christ. Now we're not talking about him being the servant of his master. He is the servant of Christ. And the slave owner is told he has a new person to emulate. And who is that? Jesus Christ. And so he has to uh, uh, treat that slave as a fellow brother in Christ or a fellow sister in Christ. And that's because of that new relationship. So the relationship among Christians gets better regardless of whether they're slaves or whether they're slave owners. Now, do you see what's happened then? It's taken a long time. It surely has. But the ratio of slaves to free men started changing, and now it's virtually almost completely changed. Now, slavery has not been totally abolished in the world, but yet in in countries that are predominantly Christian, there is no slavery. And why is that? Because God knew how to deal with the issue rightly. And that was to straighten up the relationship of man to man. Get it, or get his relationship with God right first. And then straighten up the relationship of man to man. Now here's the question for us then. We don't need to be angry and accusative about this. And say well why didn't Paul teach forcefully about slavery? Why has it taken so long to get rid of slavery? The real question is. Why aren't you treating your brother better? That's the real question. The question is not what did somebody do 200 years ago or 150 years ago in America. The question is, what are we doing right now? How are we treating our brother better right now? And why don't we treat them as God has treated us? Now, before I close here, let me go back to this thought of politics again. How are we going to change the world? Are we going to rid the world of all social injustices by protest? And are we going to involve the church in the political level of things that are going on in this country? And do we expect that we're going to change things in that way? Are we going to get rid of the liquor trade? And are we going to get rid of prostitution and gambling in our country? By taking the church out of its element, which is the preaching of the gospel of Christ, and putting it over here where it deals with issues of government. Are we going to change things that way? There's no way. 
We're going to change things that way. The only way you change things is to change the heart. You have to change the heart first. And the way to change the world is to change the hearts of the people of the world. And that's the only way that it's going to work. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever new. Change my heart, O God. May I be more like you. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about this in a different way. We're going to, really get, we're going to get into that thing about you and your workplace and how you're supposed to treat your employer and how he's supposed to treat you. And those of you that feel like slaves where you work, well, sometimes you just have to grin and bear it because that's what the Bible says. We're going to get into that next week. So let's have a word of prayer. Let's all stand, please, for invitation and have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for uh, your word tonight. We thank you for the time we spent together. Help us, Lord, to understand these things better and just the wisdom that you have. An odd subject that we talk about tonight uh, as we think about slavery, but really the whole thing is not about slavery. It's about your wisdom and how you deal with men and how you bring people to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And only in that way will all of these social injustices and things that go on be changed. The heart has to be changed first. So, Lord, we ask you to speak to hearts and indeed change us so that we might be more like you. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.